0: Ready for inspiration? A lesson in cardiology and a dose of hope? Well, welcome to The Heart Chamber, patient stories from open heart surgery and recovery. And I am your host, Boots
1: Knighton. Welcome back. This is part two of a kind of three-part story where Boots is sharing her journey with open heart surgery and the events kind of surrounding that. The part one, she walked us through the events leading up to having open heart surgery and then also with the death of her mom. And then now we're kind of gonna get into what happens next and I can't wait to sort of keep the story going. It's really a remarkable one and I look forward to part two.
0: Thanks, Mary. And again, my friend Mary Olson joining me from Washington State. Yeah, so last part, I left off with my mom cleaning out her house 12 weeks post-open heart surgery. I'd given myself nine days in her house and nine days to completely consolidate her life. And I ended up hiring an incredible you know, team of people to come in and help. But it was still really up to me to go through everything on my own. And I was also at the time not fully acknowledging that I was dealing with my own cardiac depression. My surgeon had warned me that people who have heart surgery typically get depressed afterwards. It's like cardiac depression. And that's something I'm gonna dive into in a future episode with actually a variety of different people who have various perspectives on cardiac depression. But for this episode, you know, it was in the background. I was on like an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety med to help me, that was like such a good thing to do. And I really encourage you to speak with your medical provider about that, should you be facing heart surgery, because it, it is real. And I, I did write about it in my journal. And it hit me pretty quickly. Like I was still in the hospital and it's a very different type of depression than actual like episodic depression or maybe brain chemistry depression. This it's its own thing. So I had that in the background and I'm grieving my mom. I'm thinking I'm going to go back to my job teaching soon after soon after I get back, which would be like mid-April 2021. And I noticed I'm starting to have some pain in my sternum that's different. And by now, the, the swelling had mostly gone down. It, it takes a while for the swelling to go down in your sternum. And I could start to feel the sternal wires. And then I go back to work and I'm having more and more pain. I'm noticing that I can't lift anything. And by mid-May, I call my surgeon and talk to the PA and tell her what's going on. And by now I could really feel the wires. Like I could run my fingers up and down my sternum and find each individual wire. And she gets me on the phone with my surgeon and I described to him what's happening. And he's like, you know, I was worried about this. He's like, I'm very, so I'm a very petite person. And mm-hmm. he acknowledged that. And he said, you know, most people, like 99% of the people have no problem with the sternal wires but he's like you're probably that 1% who reacts to them and i kept feeling like they were touching my nerves and so i would get like these electrical pulses going down my arms it was like awful it it wasn't like just uncomfortable it like really hurt when it happened and i felt like the wires were starting to work up through my skin it was it was pretty gross <laughs> And so early June, Jason takes me back down to Salt Lake and they have to open up my entire scar, my entire sternal scar that I'd worked so hard to heal well and take out all the wires. Now, these wires had already adhered to the bone or the bone had already adhered to them. And so it was a lot of trauma to my chest to pull all these wires out. And I think there were seven of them six or seven, see even that, see memories do start to fade. (laughs) So I, it was a, you know, it was an outpatient surgery. I mean, they put me under, but I was able to go home same day and I was sore. It really was a traumatic surgery to my chest. And my whole right boob was swollen and black and blue. And I just kept picturing him like, like having to put his foot up on my boob I don't know he didn't do this but like I had this like vision of him like just like Pulling, yes, yeah, it, okay. it was intense. But I, I, love my surgeon, and and he and I get along great. And he said it was a success. And I was like, "Hey, I want to keep my wires." He was like, "Why would you want to do that?" And I was like, "Well, I don't know." I was like, "You know, I want to make jewelry out of it one day, or I don't know, an altar. I why not? They cost me however hundreds of thousands of dollars. It felt like at that point. And so t- it took me about two weeks to like work up the the nerve to open the package and like look at them. But when I did, the first thing that was shocking was how thick they were. And I was like, wow, you could like fix a chain link fence with these things. That was my first, my (laughs) my first impression. (laughs) My second impression was it looks like part of a wire is missing and my heart falls through the floor. And I had had a heck of a recovery this time around. Like, it took a long time for the anesthesia to leave my body. I was extremely depressed. By now it was late June. Normally I'm mountain biking and climbing mountains and I couldn't do anything. And the grief of my mom was like finally settling in and I was just over it. Like I felt like I had just been pummeled by the universe, everybody. I was not in a good place. And I called down to, to the office down in Utah. And I was like, Hey, I'm, holding all these wires in my hand. And I wonder if one is still in my body or part of one. And they're like, the person was like, okay, I'll check. And she's like, I got, you know, I went back and read all the surgeon notes. He says he got it all. Would you like to get an x-ray just to make sure? And I thought to myself, and I was like, I rather shoot myself in the head than go into another hospital right now. Like, that's how I felt. I was like, I I'm just going to take your word for it. But deep down, I felt like there was still a part of a wire in me just by the way these wires looked. So, you know, I go through the rest of the summer. I'm like really grieving my mom. I'm working with the the person she kind of put in charge of how she set things up for me. And we're getting to know each other. I'm trying to sell her stuff. And I'm having some of the stuff I wanted to keep moved out to Idaho. It was like this dumpster fire. So here I am, like gr- like grieving my mom, finishing up her life, trying to heal, trying to figure out who I am now after like all of this. It's still COVID. It was bananas. And so by early August, the pain in my sternum is not going away. And if anything, it's getting worse. And it's really starting to bother me just kind of below your like Adam's apple. Like there's like if you touch the middle of your throat, it's like right where that dent is. So at mid-August, I was still having pain, but the pain was getting, it was like a newer pain that was in the indented part, like right where your collarbones come together. And so the surgeon, I call and let him know. He's like, I'm going to order a CT of your chest just to make sure you're healing okay. And I walk into the hospital. By now, I think this is the third or fourth CT of my chest since this whole thing began in June 2020. With contrast, I was so sick of the contrast. And they're like, why are you here? And I tell them, I was like, well, you know, I had the open heart surgery. Then I had the sternal wires removed and I'm still having trouble. And the guys are like, okay. And the sad thing was they recognize me like at this point, like the whole (laughs) hospital knows me over in Jackson, Wyoming. It's like, you know, they see me coming. They're like, oh Lord, here she comes, you know? So they, they run a couple of images and then the guy comes back in the tech and he's, he was so great. And he was like, so you said you had all the sternal wires removed, right? And I was like, yeah. And the surgeon like promised me you got it all. He's like, okay. And then I lay there a little longer and then he brings a radiologist in and that like never happens. And the radiologist was like, "Miss Knighton, I have some really hard news. You still have a wire in you. Mm. That, that was, yeah, that was a tough moment. And you know, I'm in a mask, they're all in masks, and I could tell that they were like feeling it for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And like I I finally had like nothing left. I couldn't cry. I couldn't say anything. Like I just laid there and just rage took over and disbelief. And you know, they they were. The radiologist was like, go get dressed and I'll bring you back into the office and I'll show you. And he didn't have to do that. You know, normally radiologists wouldn't do that. But he brought me in. He's like, there it is. He's like, it likely broke off in the surgery and and the surgeon just couldn't see it. And so I call, I get out of the hospital and I'm like raging and I call my husband and then I call try to call my dad, get my stepmom and I'm raging at her, not at her but just raging and then I call the surgeon's office and I just could not remain calm. And you know, the long very long story short there, I I calm down, I choose not to sue and I choose to meet him as a human being and you know He was like, unfortunately, I wish that was the only problem. But he's like, I don't think that's what's causing your pain. He's like, your the top of your sternum never healed properly. He's like, that also happens very rarely, but it happened. And you need to have a titanium plate put in to hold your collarbones together because they're slipping past each other. And that's likely what's hurting. So, you know, he's like, I understand if you never want me to touch you again but I would love the opportunity to fix this. So I let him. And it was, it ended up being the most healing thing I could have done for myself, for him. He's a human. It was a mistake. I would still recommend him a million times today. He made it right, you know, and the bummer was I had to be opened up a third time. So the top of my scar has been cut 3 times but it it was it was difficult but it was beautiful at the same time because it really gave me the opportunity to fully practice true deep forgiveness over something that was like really hard and it set my recovery back you know i deal with a lot of chronic pain i don't think it's just because of that but by letting him fix it by us meeting eye to eye and letting him say, I am sorry, and me saying, I forgive you, just, just fix it and let's move on. I never held any grudge or bit of anger or regret after that. And what it provided was peace for him so that he could go back doing the amazing work he does as a surgeon. And then I could fully focus on my healing
1: and peace for you too, right? I mean, I think that oh, yeah. forgiveness ends up being internal work for us and, and really like it has such a profound effect on the forgiver as well, um, mm-hmm. I think. And just mm-hmm. it's what you said about him, seeing him as a human and meeting him as a human, I think something we don't really do with, well, and that's probably in the world, but also with doctors yeah. <laughs> and surgeons, you know, it's mm-hmm. like we we put them on on some infallible level, um, and they are. But then, you know, his his being human had such a profound impact on you, and and such a, created such a, a hard circumstance. So,
0: yeah, yeah. So yeah, I had the plate put in, and then I just focused on moving forward and healing. And I was still holding on to you know getting back to skiing, getting back to my life as it was before. And I had not radically accepted that my life needed to change in every way. And that was the big kind of unraveling for me because I did try to go back to my old life, which was teaching skiing and pushing myself in the gym and pushing myself on the bike. And my heart just kept saying, nope, nope, nope. And... I really dug myself a hole emotionally and mentally over that because I just was not, you know, you hear of that quote, like some, you have to let go of what you thought your life would be. So that way you could walk into the life that's meant for you. It took many more months for me to really understand that and to accept it. And I mean, like radically accept it. And I wasn't okay with it. I felt like my old life had died and my identity died. And I had to figure out who I was going to be now with this imperfect heart that thankfully, you know, had been unroofed, but, you know, it's, it's still healing. I mean, most people don't really start to feel fully like they're coming around until like three years years after unroofing surgery and you know I'm trying to just get back to my old life within a year and I just kept not listening to my body and by December of 2021 I'm trying to go back teaching skiing and I'm just doing half days but I'm noticing I'm retaining fluid. I'm out of breath. I'm having like rhythm issues. And by Christmas night, I'm put back in the hospital and it felt like I was having a heart attack, but, and the the, the troponin wasn't elevated, but this time a blood marker called BNP was elevated, which is like a heart failure marker. And it wasn't like sky high, But it was enough that it got my cardiologist's attention, a different cardiologist that I'm now working with. And I was really not okay. And they let me out of the hospital the next day. They ended up doing another stress test, ended up having to go back down to the University of Utah for another heart catheterization everything was looking okay, but like the symptoms were not okay. And we tried a variety of medications and, you know, now that I've had a whole nother year to reflect on it and I can say that my blood is that BMP marker is within normal range now. And I'm now on just like a slow acting nitroglycerin. I'm starting to kind of come around now, but reflecting back to then, I was asking too much of my heart. It hadn't even been a year yet. Like I tried I I I can't even believe I thought that was a good idea. And to try to like teach skiing even half day, like it's a lot on the body. And my heart was just saying knock it off. Knock it off. Like this is not what we want. You know, like I've had to like turn my heart into like this, like little personality and like give it like an attitude. And,
1: you know, I can kind
0: of picture it like putting its like little arteries as acting as arms on its like, you know, lower ventricles and being like, knock it off. You know, I I was just like, no, we're gonna, no, you better pull it together. I know you've been cut into and your feelings are hurt, but we're going to get back to our old life. And it's like, no, we're not. And I'm going to put you into heart failure if you don't
1: pull it together. Mm-hmm. There's so much identity wrapped up in that. Gotta so get back. Much. Gotta get back, gotta get out there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a hard, gotta be a hard thing to reinvent.
0: And that was what Last Winter was. You know, I wrote a book last winter. I wrote 94,000 words and it was basically making meaning of My mom's death during my time fighting to live. That book will come out in probably a couple of years because I'm now writing a book that's going to go before that. But last winter was really about deeply grieving everything. I mean, everything. It was, I I didn't have a choice. It was either I was going to die. My heart was going to like die of like some emotional overload at that point, or I ride it out of me. So I chose to write it out. And then by March 20th, a year, exactly a year after my mom's death, I wrote the last sentence of that book. And I felt like I had done all the grieving I needed to do. And I mean, I still grieve my mom. I miss her. I love my mom. But it was like a year of truly, deeply grieving her. And I started to pull out of it some. I mean, I did have to go to the Mayo Clinic this past summer because I'm still struggling with endothelial dysfunction, vasospasms. I'm likely like on the edge of some microvascular disease. But my local cardiologist wanted me to go to the best of the best just to really make sure that, you know, I was still healing okay. And she just felt like, you know, University of Utah had been exhausted. And even my surgeon was supportive of me going to the Mayo Clinic. So I wasn't patient with my recovery, I thought I I was being patient, but apparently I didn't know what patience really is. And so I've learned that. I've learned what forgiveness really means and is, like not only of forgiving my surgeon, but for also forgiving my mom. It was such a complicated grief for me. That's why there's a whole book that I've written about it. And then the other thing that I really have had to learn is just the deep self-love that is needed to get through something like this and the amount of grace that one has to give oneself in order to make it through something like this. And I couldn't have gotten that from a book. You just have to be in it and you have to be living it every day with a damn good therapist by your side and a damn good husband and support network and two dogs and three cats.
1: (laughs) What would you sort of tell people going in or starting on this journey? If there's, if there are just a couple of things to take mm-hmm. away now that you're, because a lot of what I, a lot of what you've described are things I, I've heard you say a few times, I needed to go through that. I needed to go through that, but right. so kind of understanding that everyone has their own journey and that they're going to be, you know, there's no maybe shortcut, but what would you kind of tell people as both advice, encouragement, anything else?
0: If you don't have a therapist, find one, even if it's like, a support group, like even a support group, both would be better. But you know, if you obviously there's the myocardial bridge support group for the defect I had corrected, there's a bicuspid support group out there. There's a microvascular disease support group. I'm part of that also (laughs) on Facebook. So like find your people, even if it's over social media that like really understand. But I cannot emphasize enough the importance of a therapist because there's so much medical trauma, like the physical trauma of the body, that you will endure. Having a therapist that's trained in EMDR, it's like eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. I think that's right. I did a lot of that with my therapist before the surgery, which helped me like be able to stay calmer going into the heart surgery. And then we did a bunch afterwards. And I will tell you, That's why I think my open heart surgery was really not that big of a deal. In fact, when Jason and I were leaving the hospital, I said to him, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. But we did not do it for my first heart catheterization at Stanford. We didn't prep for that. And I was severely traumatized from that, severely traumatized. And so actually like doing pre-trauma work and post-trauma work is so important for the body. It's really important for the nervous system. And then that way you just get right, your body can get like right to the healing part. And then just being willing to ask for help. Like I know asking for help is like kind of almost poo-pooed in our society. I hope that's starting to change. But like, you know, I asked like our friends were... They just showed up and I asked for meals because I knew that I couldn't do them before surgery. And then I definitely couldn't cook after surgery. And I just needed that weight taken off Jason so he could focus on all these other things. And so let your people, let your community help. And if you don't feel like you have a community, I bet you're wrong. And I bet you're more loved than you even think you are. Like, you know, we are not alone. We do not have to do things alone. We are social beings, and we are meant to love on each other and be there for each other. But you have to be willing to ask for it and be open to the help.
1: So set up a set up a support network ahead of time, and then be willing to use it. Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. into that, into that community. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything? I think
0: that's. I think that's enough. If you're still with us, thank you. (laughs) Imagine living this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, for listeners, what I have coming up for the heart chamber is so exciting. I have other stories of myocardial bridging. I have bicuspid stories, heart transplant. I am bringing on my nutritionist who ended up being like this missing link, like I just I just only connected with her in August of 2022. And turns out like, open heart surgery and a lot of stress at the same time can really mess up hormones and throw cortisol all out of whack. And so that was like a really important piece that I didn't catch until later, that has made all the difference in my life. And so she's coming on, I'm bringing on my physical therapists to talk about ways you can heal at home, and maybe you're really isolated and don't have access to a good physical therapist. So I'm providing that. And then I'm hoping to bring on various cardiologists and surgeons, but it's mostly going to be patient stories where we're all coming together to share our hope and our support and grace for each other.
1: Well, thanks for sharing your story. And, and thanks again for having me on to, to do it with you. And yeah, looking forward to everything to come on Heart Chamber.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Mary, for being here today. It means a lot. And that's the show for today. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. The Heart Chamber exists because of you. If you find value in this podcast, consider donating to this cause. Go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and go to the donate link. And hey, while you're there, feel free to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear from you. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss another Tuesday edition of The Heart Chamber. Thanks again. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week with more stories of open heart surgery and recovery.